This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. On the afternoon of November 9th, 1909, William Howard Taft, the 27th President of the United States, climbed to his feet on a stage set up in front of Wilmington Stalian Hall and looked out on a crowd of 20,000 people. I feel at home with you, he said at the outset of his speech, drawing a wave of cheers from the people hanging on his every word. That day in Wilmington was one of those tailor-made for a spot in the history books. Preparations had been made for weeks ahead of the president's visit, part of his 13,000-mile, 33-state journey around the country in his first year as commander-in-chief. In essence, he was surveying his kingdom, and Wilmington marked one of his final stops. It gave the city which already had a pretty lauded history, dating back to the Revolutionary War, a rare chance to boast about itself to the most powerful man in America and tell him why the port city was a jewel of the South. A parade was thrown in his honor, and mobs of onlookers followed his every move around town. Think of it as when the Beatles landed in the United States for the first time in 1964. It was a madhouse. Only four times prior to Taft's visit did the city get this chance to show off a bit for a sitting or recently retired president. And it wouldn't be for another 111 years that it would get this kind of chance again when Donald Trump came to Wilmington in September 2020 to mark the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II by naming it the nation's first World War II heritage city. In our current political climate, we've seen how a presidential visit, even one not intended as part of a campaign, can be so divisive for residents, angering some and inspiring others. But in the first century and a half of America, when politics were a little different, what did it mean when presidents walked in Wilmington. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're venturing into territory that we don't often explore. On this podcast, we tend to steer clear of politics and instead focus on the history 
that all of us can learn from and value, no matter our political affiliation. But sometimes, history and politics intersect. And I can't simply ignore that 2020 is an incredibly crucial presidential election year. As of this recording, the first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden is just a few days away. So I thought we would acknowledge the looming election the best way I know how, through the lens of local history. Since the end of the Revolutionary War, a 200-year time frame, give or take a few decades, six presidents have made stops in Wilmington that weren't acting as part of political campaigns, or at least that wasn't their intended purpose. There was George Washington, James Monroe, Millard Fillmore, James K. Polk, William Howard Taft, and most recently, Donald Trump. The latter president's World War II-themed visit in September is still fresh enough in our minds that we don't need to cover it on this show. But I encourage everyone to go back and listen to our World War II episodes to hear about why the port city was so deserving of the Heritage City honor. Frankly, there have been other presidents who have come to Wilmington in the height of campaign season, hoping to persuade North Carolina's swing state voters to support their party at the ballot box. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy during the Civil War, also visited Wilmington to inspect the area's defensive works and the troops stationed at Fort Fisher. But seeing as how Davis was the president of the Confederate States of America, we won't be discussing him in this episode. Instead, we're going to focus on those first five presidential visits to Wilmington from men who held the office of the President of the United States of America, for whom we will very soon be casting a ballot. But for this episode, we're sticking with those first five presidential visits, which offer interesting insight into the customs and clashes of their respective moments in time. As always, I'll share with you these stories, as they have been passed down through history and told through legend. But this week, we won't have a guest. It's just going to be me, you, and our stories. So sit back and settle in for a new episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, as we shuffle through some political history to take a look at five famous presidential visits to Wilmington. In the first decade after the Revolutionary War, it wasn't so easy to think of oneself as an American. It may seem strange to fathom now, when our national identity is so deeply rooted in our pride of America and her history. But in those first few years after the war, which had forged the foundation of this country, a national identity was still a work in progress. For most residents, they still remembered life under British rule. But in George Washington, they saw what it meant and what it looked like to be an American. The country's perceptive first president was well aware of this important role that he played for a nation still wrestling with the constraints of a new government. So, 
In the spring of 1791, less than two years into his presidency, Washington made good on his promise to visit all 13 former colonies with a tour of the southern states through the Carolinas, Virginia, and Georgia. FaceTime with the people and first-hand knowledge of the states that formed his country was of paramount importance to the president, who knew making stops in major cities and ports would also earn him tremendous favor at a crucial time when citizens were feeling the growing pains of self-governance. This may not seem like a landmark tour, but Washington had never visited the states south of Virginia. So doing it was a big deal for those cities and citizens that lay in his path. He departed Philadelphia on March 21, 1791, and he did it in presidential style. His caravan included his personal, white, state-of-the-art carriage, another wagon just for his baggage, and the president's beloved white horse, Prescott. His journey began with an easterly route, one that ran along the coast and eventually cut its way through eastern North Carolina. Washington, ever the precise and punctual man whose preference for timeliness had served him well in the war, had timed his trip to the minute, taking into account travel time on the South's notoriously bad roads and even factoring in the lack of lodging and food options along the way. A month into his trip, he had made it to Newburn, from which he departed for Wilmington early in the day on April 24th. On his way there, Washington, who was a noted diarist, made note of what he saw from the window of his carriage. Quote, The whole road from Newburn to Wilmington passes through the most barren country I ever beheld especially in the parts nearest to the latter, which is no other than a bed of white sand. End quote. About 12 miles outside of Wilmington, near modern-day Hampstead, Washington rested under the outstretched branches of a large oak tree that would become known as the Washington Oak. The tree that shaded the nation's first president was so beloved by the locals in the years that followed that a marker was placed underneath it by the Daughters of the American Revolution in the 1920s to commemorate the spot. There's actually an old legend in this area that Washington's stop at the tree was the inspiration behind the town's name, Hampstead. The story goes that Washington stopped at the tree to have lunch and requested mullet for the meal. But the fish just weren't biting that day so he had to settle for Ham instead. Get it? Hamstead? Anyway, on the road that connected Newburn to Wilmington, Washington was met by the Light Horse Cavalry Escort at Rouse's Tavern, where the British Army had ambushed and massacred a group of patriots in 1781. We covered that incident in our episode titled Massacre After Midnight. He arrived in Wilmington around 2 p.m. that afternoon with an enthusiastic city ready to greet him. Crowds of people, both city residents and those who traveled in from the rural countryside, watched as he made his way down Wilmington's dirt streets. 
On the river, even the boats had dressed to impress with decorations and messages of welcome. As part of his big entrance, Washington famously received a rousing triple federal salute when four guns fired off three rounds of 15 shots. Celebratory rounds of gunfire are said to have been pretty popular during his 36-hour visit. Just one way, Wilmington residents showed off their excitement. He was taken to Dorsey's Tavern and fed all he could eat, then driven on an inspection tour of the city. At the time, downtown Wilmington only extended as far west as Fifth Avenue, but it was still an impressive city to show off. He noted that the state's census claimed the city was home to about a 1,000 residents, but he took issue with that assessment, claiming the census had been quote-unquote very inaccurately and shamefully taken. It is said that Washington was curious about the political and economic issues at play in the southern communities and often took note of area exports and political leanings. He remarked on Wilmington's mud bank, which he implied might limit the boats able to dock at low tide. But he was impressed to learn that 250-ton vessels still push their way upriver to ferry exports like naval stores, lumber, and tobacco. While in town, he was put up at the home of Miss John Quince, described as a wealthy widow who had offered up her pretentious home at Front and Dock Streets to the most distinguished guest to ever visit Wilmington. Unfortunately, years later, that home was destroyed by fire. The following day, he was again escorted around Wilmington as part of a military parade and was entertained at a gentleman's only dinner before being shuffled off to a glamorous ball held at Assembly Hall, a gathering place and eventual sailor's boarding house that once stood on Front Street between Ann and Orange. The building was affectionately nicknamed Old 76 because it was built in 1776. In his diary, Washington noted the ball was attended by 62 ladies, and after sunset, the streets of the city were illuminated by bonfires for his benefit. At sunrise the next morning, his men packed up their carriages and set out for their next stop, which first required a barge ride across the Cape Fear River to Brunswick County. Hundreds gathered on the waterfront to bid farewell to the nation's first commander-in-chief, who was set to visit his friend, Governor Benjamin Smith, at his Belvedere plantation before leaving the region. At the dock across the river, 13 girls dressed in white to signify the 13 original colonies, greeted the president and laid flowers at his feet as he walked along the river to Smith's plantation, where he was treated to breakfast. And then, just as quickly as he had ridden into town, George Washington was off to Charleston. On his loop back up north in the coming weeks, he would pass through Charlotte, Salisbury, Salem, and stop at the Guilford Courthouse one of several Revolutionary War battlefields that he visited on his tour. I should note that there's no mention of him visiting Moore's Creek Battlefield in Pender County on his way into town. 
It would be 28 years before another president set their sights on Wilmington. But even then, Washington's visit still loomed large. James Monroe, the nation's fifth president, arrived in Wilmington on April 12, 1819, for a tour of the city. His visit, like the next two presidents we'll discuss, was not as grand as Washington's. In fact, even though it had been nearly three decades, Monroe's arrival was overshadowed, in many ways, by the lingering memory of Washington's visit, which many residents still remembered. While in town, Monroe toured the city, took a trip to Wrightsville Beach, and closed it out with a dinner at Wilmington Hotel on his second day. As he made his way out of the city, he sailed down the Cape Fear River on the steamer Prometheus, on its way to Fort Johnston in Southport, which he took time to inspect just as the town around it was starting to blossom. It was from Southport that he headed for Georgetown, South Carolina. Thirty years later, in 1849, James K. Polk was just three days retired from the presidency when he visited Wilmington at the request of its citizens. Polk was a North Carolina boy, having been born in Pineville. His mother, Jane Knox, was the daughter of James Knox, whose farmhouse still stands today in Iredale County. Polk was said to have played on the farm in his youth. He went to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill before moving to Tennessee to start his law practice. His presidency was defined by his commitment to expansion, during which he increased the territory of the United States by a third, and it was under his administration that the country stretched from coast to coast for the first time. When Polk arrived in Wilmington on March 7, 1849, he was met with the boom of cannons, the clanging of bells, and more than a few banners hung in the front of homes and businesses, welcoming the now former leader to town. Joined by his wife and niece, Polk made the stop on his way to his home in Tennessee, where he planned to spend his post-presidency years. Unfortunately, he would be dead within a few months. While in Wilmington, he was treated to a parade of military companies and music and spoke from the balcony of a boarding house he was put up in at Front and Dock Streets. In his largely informal speech, Polk reflected on his upbringing in the state and acknowledged his affection for it and its people, despite a career that had taken him away from it years ago. After he was done speaking, he invited the hundreds of onlookers to form a line and come inside to say hello. Soon, he was off to Tennessee, where he would die on June 15th. In a bittersweet sort of way, Wilmington would become the last notable encounter Polk shared with his home state. Tragedy and rain would constantly plague Millard Fillmore's plans to visit Wilmington at the end of his presidency in the early 1850s. The 13th president was first supposed to visit in March 1853, but his wife took ill. Members of his cabinet followed through with the planned visit, which was highly sought after by local residents after word spread of Fillmore's interest in a post-presidency Southern tour. 
but he stayed behind to tend to his wife. She died the following month. The next year, in 1854, he made good on his promise of a tour of the South, visiting New Orleans before making his way to Wilmington on May 12th. It is said that he made it clear his visit was not political, and he didn't want the quote-unquote pomp and pageantry of previous presidential drop-ins. And he didn't get it. He was slated to make a few remarks to the crowd from the balcony of the Holmes Hotel at Market and Front Streets. But before he could get a word in, the clouds opened up and dropped rain. By the time the weather had departed, so had Fillmore. While in Wilmington, an acquaintance of his traveling with him learned of his own wife's illness and requested the trip be cut short, canceling a planned stop in Raleigh. Apart from shaking the hands of locals he happened to meet, Fillmore's visit was uneventful, and he never returned to the city for a do-over. In a way, all of these presidential visits were a build-up to when William Howard Taft arrived in Wilmington in 1909. Maybe it was because his was the first presidential visit in the age of photography, or the fact that it happened more recently in comparison to the others. Whatever the reason, Taft's visit was as large as his legacy. If you remember anything from your high school history class about Taft, it's likely to be the story of how the notably robust 27th president got stuck in a bathtub at the White House. But Taft actually holds a pretty prominent place in the history of the presidency as the only man to serve as both president and chief justice of the United States. Taft had been vocal about his desire to go on a tour of the states, and persistent pleas from local city officials secured Wilmington a spot on the itinerary. In the days before his visit on November 9, 1909, it was excitedly referred to as Taft Day. Some businesses shut down to give their employees the chance to see the president in person, and others offered Taft Day sales to attract business from the thousands of visitors coming to town. He arrived in Wilmington just after 8 a.m. by a special Atlantic Coastline Railroad train and exited Union Station to the cheers of thousands of residents who had gathered outside just to see his entrance to the city. In front of the post office at Front and Chestnut Streets, a 30-foot-tall archway, a glow with lights and reading, Welcome to the Land of the Longleaf Pine, was constructed just so Taft could ride under it as he drove away from the train station. Quickly, he was shuffled off to breakfast at the home of James Sprunt, the noted historian whose name and work we've long mentioned on this podcast. Sprunt was a titan of the area, specifically due to his cotton business and his habit for preserving the region's history, making him the ideal leader of the welcoming committee for the president. After they finished breakfast, Taft, Sprunt, and several dignitaries climbed aboard the Cutter Seminole at 10.30 a.m. for a four-hour trip down the Cape Fear River to Southport, where Taft was to inspect Fort Caswell. On their journey, those on board brought the president's attention to the Dram Tree, 
the ancient bald cypress tree that at that time still stood along the river as a sign of safe passage into Wilmington. That tree would be lost to dredging in the 1940s. There was such an intense attention put on Taft's visit to town that the Wilmington Morning Star reported on every detail of what happened, right down to the lunch that he had on board the Seminole. Chicken salad, oyster cocktails, olives, pickles, North Carolina ham, sandwiches, olive sandwiches, beaten biscuits, and Mum's extra-dry champagne. Following the boat ride, Taft was escorted by car through Wilmington as part of a parade, which featured military companies and bands from across the state. The procession meandered its way through town to the street front steps of Thalian Hall, where an estimated 20,000 people awaited his remarks. As he made his final approach, Taft was treated to a grand display that was already stretching up Market Street. As soon as he rounded the corner, he saw hundreds of children, dressed in red, white, and blue, and carefully arranged to create a living American flag, something the president is said to have been very impressed by. In his introduction, North Carolina Governor William Kitchen joked that he expected to see all of New Hanover County out in the crowd, but he was delighted to look out and find that all of North Carolina had shown up. As soon as he took to his feet to speak, the crowd went wild. So wild, in fact, that the paper reported he couldn't start his speech over the roar. He congratulated the city and the state on its industrial endeavors, its cotton production, and its pride in the longleaf pine, which he advocated should be valued but not devoured to a point where the state exhausts the natural resource. He reflected on the Civil War battle fought at Fort Fisher, which he described as carnage fought to see, quote, how much lead can be pumped from one side into the fort of another, end quote. He even joked about what it would take to be initiated into the state as a true citizen. Quote, I am glad to be in the Old North State, my heels have not yet had tar on them, but your mayor was good enough to extend a welcome to me and offer to put tar on them if it was necessary to make me a North Carolinian. End quote. When he was done speaking, Taff was carted off to his next stop, the Cape Fear Club, less than a block away on Chestnut Street, where he lounged and talked shop and politics with the men for a few hours before dinner at the Masonic Lodge on Front Street. Throughout his trip, a steady gathering of groupies had gathered outside whatever building the president was in to get a glimpse of the man in person. Again, Taft was like the Beatles, all rolled into one. And no, that isn't a jab at his weight. That night's party went as grandly as expected after a day of historic pomp and circumstance. But one curious note in the newspaper says that it was at the Masonic Temple that he was gifted the likeness of a quote-unquote old Negro mammy sketched by a local woman and a reverend, just in case you needed a reminder of what time period we're talking about. One has to consider 
that while 30,000 people may have come to Wilmington for the president's visit, it was almost certainly a predominantly white crowd, as this was barely a decade after the 1898 racial massacre, when the city's white supremacist violently targeted and killed members of the city's black population. With those scars still laid bare, Taft's call for unity in reference to his remarks about the bloodshed at Fort Fisher are really striking and indicative of the time considering the struggles for equality that came before and would certainly come after. Quote, All that history you cherish and we cherish, but it does not make the slightest difference in our brotherly feeling, in our fraternal desire, always to exhibit and manifest the love of each other, which comes of standing elbow to elbow in the march of progress to make this nation, great as it is, even greater, to afford under our country's flag an equal opportunity to all to work out their fortunes. End quote. Taft would only serve one term as president, despite being renominated by the Republican Party in 1912. Most historians attribute his failed re-election campaign to former President Teddy Roosevelt, who first challenged him for the nomination and then fled the party ahead of the election to join the growing progressive movement, a defection that divided the party and helped push a new name to the top of voters' minds, Woodrow Wilson. Ironically, Wilson, who ended up winning the election, had even stronger ties to Wilmington. He had spent some of his formative years in the city, from 1874 to 1882, when his father presided over the first Presbyterian church congregation in Wilmington. Wilson's connections to the area add another wrinkle to Wilmington's history, one that we'll touch on in the future. But these five presidential visits, fleeting as they may have been, brought their own dose of character and infamy to the city's reputation. Although the office of the president has faced its triumphs and self-inflicted wounds over the decades, getting a visit from a president is an honor. And while we may never agree on who holds the office, we can at least agree on that. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our look at Wilmington's historic presidential visits. Thank you so much for joining me. No matter who you support in the upcoming election on November 3rd, please make sure that you are registered to vote. Visit vote.gov to learn how to register online, how to find your polling place, and how to request a mail-in ballot. And if you live in North Carolina, early voting begins October 15th and runs through October 31st. Contact your local Board of Elections office for specifics on early voting sites and hours. And check back in soon for our next episode, when we'll turn to another chapter in our local history book. Until then, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, 
I post extra content for each of our episodes and all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or by following me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure that you subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.